Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Tech Stands Up podcast on San Francisco Community Radio. I am your host, Brad Taylor. Uh, So for those who don't know, Tech Stands Up is a grassroots movement of tech workers, users, and neighbors formed to encourage the tech industry to defend our values within our companies, our communities, and our country. And if you'd like to find more about Tech Stands Up, you can always visit us at www.techstandsup.org. So we live in one of the most transformative times in human history, and it's being driven by the technology that is being developed right here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Technology is changing the way our society operates at a pace that is unprecedented in history. On the first Monday of every month, we'll be discussing the intersection of technology and policy and how the decisions that are being made today will affect the course of our society for many of years to come. So the key to functioning democracy is an informed electorate, and we hope to both educate and entertain you as the listener about these issues so that you can make an informed decision the next time you go into the voting booth, use a product, or decide where you want to spend your money and what services to use. So we have an enormous responsibility to future generations to ensure that what we do at this moment will be looked back with admiration and not disappointment. We'll be here every step of the way to try and ask the right questions and report on what is happening in this crucial intersection of technology and politics. So I wouldn't be able to do this alone, uh, and to help me, I have one of my best friends, uh, Adam Harris, uh, who will be my co-host. Adam, uh, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Just to give everybody a little bit of a background, my name is Adam Harris. I'm the founder and principal at T. Harris Consultants. So I've worked in tech for about 15 years, uh, across advertising, content management, healthcare, virtual reality, e-commerce, and pretty much everything all over the map. I'm excited to be here um, with you, Brad, and different guests we're going to have every month uh, to help educate any listeners out there as well as continue my own learning path. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks, Adam. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to bringing this uh, to you every single, uh, every first uh, Monday of the month. Uh, so today's main topic uh, that we're going to discuss today is on April 3rd, uh, President Trump signed into law a resolution that allows your internet service provider uh, to sell your private browsing history to third parties. Now, some argue that your ISP is put at a disadvantage with other companies like Facebook and Google, uh, while privacy advocates argue that this allows ISPs to sell your data with no restrictions on how that data is used. In this episode, we're going to talk about what this bill means to you, the internet you user and what you can do to protect your privacy. So to help us, today's guests, uh, we have uh, Shahid uh, Buttar, who is the Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Shahid. Thanks for having me, Brad. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Um, so we also have uh, Megan Zori, who is an attorney and privacy law professional here in San Francisco, um, and is also a uh, teaches uh, information privacy law at uh, the Indiana University of McKinney School of Law. Um, welcome to the show, Megan. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. Excellent. So, Adam, uh, do you want to just Tell us about the bill, um, you know, what was passed uh, on April 3rd, what was signed into law, and uh, just to kind of give us a little bit of backstory about what, uh, what, um, what the bill says. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so going back in history a little bit, um, back before 2015, uh, when the open internet order um, was put out there by the FCC, uh, the FTC, so the Federal Trade Commission, was actually the primary regulator of the company's privacy and data security practices. The FTC had the authority to bring enforcement actions against companies who engaged in unfair and deceptive practices. And then in 2015, there was a little bit of a reclassification of the broadband providers removed uh, the ISPs, so, so the Internet Service Providers, if anybody's not familiar with that, uh, from the FTC's jurisdiction. So in April 20, 2016, and this is what everybody was very excited about um, from the privacy standpoint, uh, the FCC proposed a rule that uh, applied privacy requirements of the Communications Act to the Internet Service Providers. However, like you mentioned before, this rule did not apply to some of the larger tech companies and even the smaller tech companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc., because they were still under the FTC's authority. So this resolution that they've come up would be to repeal back these privacy laws, uh, privacy rules. Um, one big thing I want to mention is that even though these were signed in, they weren't actually hadn't taken effect yet. Um, so, but because they were put out there, uh, it does feel like a step back for most people. So just to uh, kind of give you some bullet points of uh, what's being repealed. So the ISPs uh, had to give customers detailed privacy notice about what happens with their data. Getting this mm -hmm. I, ISPs must have an opt-in for sharing any sensitive personal information. Uh, sensitive personal information could be financial information, any health information about yourself, social security numbers, uh, precise geolocation information, um, which you know, can, and I believe Megan can chime in on this in a bit, uh, for uh, potentially where you live or work. Um, any information having to do with children, uh, web browsing history, applications, usage history on your phones, um, etc. They also have, ISPs have to have an opt-out for sharing this your non-sensitive personal information. So that means you have an ability to go in and say, "Hey, like, I don't want you to share this." Um, and I'm going to opt out. Big thing is, another thing is the enterprise customers are exempt from most of these rules. So uh, it's a pretty good overview, hopefully. Uh, Shahid or Megan, if you have anything you'd like to add to that, I'd love to hear. Um, or if I was off base on anything. So yeah, so let's just open it up. So Shahid, I'd love to get, uh, you know, what were your initial thoughts when this was first repealed? I sort of describe this as a shot in the dark, shot across the bow, and a, a, an omen of more to come from the new GOP-led Congress. And it, it's interesting that it reflects, to some extent, an uh, attack on Internet freedom to the relative dead of night. You know, people did not exactly see this coming. We had passed and very concerned about the erosion of uh, rules that ensured that neutrality, and so an attack on the ISP broadband privacy rules came at the digital security community a little bit out of left field. Among the things that's particularly disturbing about it is that it not only undermines the ability of the gov government to regulate ISPs to, for instance, defend user privacy, uh, but it limits the government's ability to do so in the future by stripping it. It's not just changing a rule, it's stripping jurisdiction from federal agencies, which is a a layer more pernicious. Uh, 
And I think it, quite frankly, places users at risk in the service of giving Internet service providers an opportunity to monetize uh, their chunk of the business. And ultimately, it inflates the role of ISPs um, by essentially giving them ways to monetize their traffic in ways that value-added data uh, aggregators, analyzers, and essentially online advertising companies like Facebook and Google uh, do. It, it's giving ISPs an opportunity to basically be Google and Facebook, even though they've done nothing to justify having access to those kinds of advertising revenues. And it, it reflects the sort of corporate capture of Congress in a way that is entirely too predictable and in a way that if we look to the future beyond this particular policy area, you know, I shudder to think where that ultimately leads. Okay. Uh, Megan, what were your first thoughts when you when you first heard that this was repealed? Yeah, I think it felt a little bit like one step forward, two steps back. Um, as she had mentioned, um, it's not just that they repealed the rule, um, because the Senate did it through invoking Congressional, the Congressional Review Act, um, it prevents the FCC from going back and creating a similar rule in the future. Um, so in some sense, it's, it's, you know, the FCC decided to take, um, split off the ISPs, make them common carriers, take the jurisdiction away from the FTC and put it under the FCC. Um, and then they were trying to basically, you know, create rules for them under the Communications Act, but those rules are basically written for telephone services. And so they came out with this new rule that was going to explain how they, how they were going to uh, apply those rules to broadband services. Um, and it seemed, you know, they were, they were a little bit um, more consumer favorable than, than the FTC's rule, so it seemed like a positive step for consumers, something you would expect from an agency that, you know, ideally is protecting consumers. Uh, to go back then and not just, you know, take the rule away, but also to prevent a similar rule from happening in the future, you know, again, feels like two steps backwards, because now we don't have FTC oversight, uh, and the FCC is essentially, their, their hands are tied in being able to do anything to uh, regulate how ISPs are going to be using this data. And the argument is basically that, you know, they want to create uniformity between, you know, Facebook and Google and the ISPs and that, you know, people who are collecting information for, for advertising purposes should be treated, you know, roughly the same. Um, but they're not the same. ISPs collect totally different data. The way that you go about using your Internet service provider is different than the way that you go about using Google or uh, Facebook. Uh, one big difference is you typically pay for your internet service, whereas you don't pay for Facebook. You pay with your information, some people would argue. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that maybe they shouldn't be treated similarly. So, so, you, um, so we talked a little bit about like how we just talked about the scope. Um, it's a little bit different uh, than, well, it is completely different than Google or Facebook collecting your data. I'd like to unpack that a little bit um, more because um, we all know that Google, Facebook, they use the data that they uh, that they receive uh, from the actions, the likes, the searches. How is this different? Uh, because, you know, ISPs said that they were at a disadvantage to these companies, but why is it different when uh, the ISP is collecting the data and selling it to third parties versus Google or Facebook? I think the, the main differences are basically uh, choice, for one. That's what sticks out first for me. Um, if you don't want Facebook to have your data, in theory, you can just sign off and stop using Facebook, and Facebook, you know, should no longer collect data about you. 
Um, with an ISP, a lot of times you don't have a choice in who your ISP provider is in your area. There's typically a monopoly or there's only a handful of ISPs that serve a certain area. Um, so you maybe only have a choice of two. And so what is your option then to stop using the internet? Um, aside from choice uh, and the fact that, you know, because there's so few providers, there's not really a lot of competition or, or ways that you could compete on privacy or reason to compete on privacy as a, a value. Um, the scope of the collection is much different. Uh, with Facebook, you know, Facebook's only going to collect, you know, the, the behaviors and the, the likes and whatnot that you create on Facebook. Um, with an ISP, it's going to collect uh, information across, you know, a broad swath of applications and services that you might use. Uh, it's going to be much harder to determine what information it's inferring, not just collecting about you, but inferences it's making about you, um, about them, you know, based on the data that it's collected about you. Um, the other thing that I think is more concerning is that they have direct access to the user. So most services like Facebook or Google will collect IP addresses, and IP addresses, you know, arguably, you know, in the U.S. at least, they're in most cases they're not known as being something that would identify an individual. Arguably, you know, people have different views on that. Um, but in theory, it's just an address. It's a, like a location of land, let's say. Um, and then on that land, you could build a website in the same way that you could build a house on a, on a regular address. Um, when you're dealing with Facebook, they may get that IP address, but they don't have the individual name that associates back to that IP address. They don't have the, the name of the store that's located there, the name of the person that's located there. Um, the ISP does. And so it's a much weaker link to tie all the information back to an identifiable individual. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Shahid. Uh, so yeah, what is the difference? So in, in your in your uh, in your work, how how do you see this as different than what Google or Facebook is doing? I think Megan nailed it uh, by and large. So you know, it's also worth noting that you know the Google and the Facebooks of the world, unlike the ISPs of the world, are performing functions that are more than essentially common carrier utility functions, right? I mean, ISPs are giving their users access to an arena where other companies like Google and Facebook are the ones actually providing value uh, by, for instance, developing online services, hosting the data that users uh, submit, uh, all the things that ISPs don't. I mean, you, you, could, you could think of the latest um, uh, policy as giving ISPs an opportunity to monetize a, a function that they, they don't actually contribute to. Um, which is, you know, one reason why I describe it as reflecting essentially the corporate co-optation of Congress. Uh, because this is a, it's an example of what I would describe from an economic standpoint as a rent-seeking uh, maneuver. It, it enables the ISPs to extract economic rent from the Internet uh, as a function essentially of their position, regardless of the value that they're adding to the market, all the reasons why. Since we would ideally have competition law that governs these issues, but you know, the Ninth Circuit, for instance, has ruled that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, the other agency that conservative that think argues are privacy in the absence of the FTC, you know, that they've stripped the FTC of fiction. Uh, the FTC, according to the Ninth Circuit, doesn't have jurisdiction uh, to uh, regulate any company for whom any component of their business is, is that of being a common carrier. So the it's, it's a bit of a catch-22, mm -hmm. essentially. And that, I think, is essentially what the both the ISPs and the GOP majority of Congress are banking on, 
is that people don't understand the landscape enough to understand what's happening here. There's another piece I should throw at the table here. You know, a lot of people perceive these issues as implicating privacy, and that's absolutely true, but it's more than merely that. You know, privacy is not just what people think of as the right to be you know, left alone or the right not to be observed. Privacy is also, in a country with a history of suppressing dissent like the United States, privacy also stands as for freedom of expression. And it also, in this particular context, if you think about ISPs having the opportunity to monitor user data to, for instance, insert advertisements uh, into, essentially, web traffic that users are not looking for, that not only undermines privacy, but there are security implications of those practices, right? This law puts ISPs in the position of undermining not only user privacy, but also their security by interposing ISP-served advertising content in ways that, for instance, break the security protocols of web pages that users are visiting. And that's an aspect of this law that no one, quite frankly, has gripped, uh, that the GOP majority has certainly not been called out for, and one that I think ISPs are going to be at. Uh, we can expect to see some really profound problems emerging. Right. So, so unpack that a little bit more around the security. So you said that you know someone could uh, be less secure on their web page. So for someone who doesn't know all the ins and outs, like how can this make the, their uh, their web experience less secure? So let's say at the moment that you're using the web, uh, let's say your ISP is Verizon, and let's say your search engine. Uh, that you're using primarily is Google, and let's say you're searching for things like diapers or T-shirts or some kind of apparel, right? And so at the moment, Google has an opportunity to essentially monetize your search history by tracking what you're searching and tailoring advertisements to you that might be uh, specifically related to your interests. You know, Facebook does the same thing. All of the social media sites do it. The ISPs at the moment don't do it because they don't know what you're searching for necessarily. I mean, the idea here at least behind the law, was to keep the, the law that the recent one repealed, was to keep ISPs from selling, for instance, your browsing history. Now that Internet service providers like Verizon know what you're searching for, Verizon can serve its own advertisements on the web pages that you visit, so that it's not just Google or Facebook inserting ads for more diapers or T-shirts, but Verizon is adding its own. And Verizon is adding its own advertisements to web pages that companies... Uh, like Google or Facebook, whose websites you're visiting, they think they're delivering you pages. Verizon is adding their own code on top. Every time you have that sort of interposition, that's an opportunity for hackers essentially to intervene, to seek an exploit. Uh, those sorts of interpositions of ISP-generated content, particularly driven by advertising revenue, on top of the web content that users are seeking, that represents a security risk because it's the, the, the addition of the ISP data is a, that's essentially a hackable point in the data delivery chain that was not there before. Uh, and, and the implications of that vulnerability and where it leads is ISP speak, not having, given, having been given the legal opportunity to monetize their position, now that their business model you know, will unwind all of the various ways for them to do that in practice, that's where the security vulnerability uh, We've not yet begun to, you know, even scratch the surface practice. 
Interesting. So, so one of the other things that uh, both you and Megan talked about was this concept of common carrier. Um, for those who may not know what that means, uh, why, uh, what is being a common carrier, and why, or or do you believe that having the internet be considered a common carrier is the right way forward? And if so, like, why? Uh, why should that uh, be the way that we go forward? A common carrier is just a company that offers its services to the general public under a license or authority provided by a regulatory body. Um, so in layman's terms? <laughs> in this case, we're talking about internet service providers. Um, telephone service providers are also under um, the FCC. Uh, freight companies, railroads, bus lines can also be common carriers. Okay, and then does that give government full oversight of that utility then? There's usually an agency that oversees it. So okay. like the FCC or the you know, transportation agency. Anything to add to that, uh, Shahid? Shahid. Shahid, sorry. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly the idea is that common carriers are supposed to be subjected to the oversight of some regulatory body because they are providing essentially utility services to the public. What makes the, the, the law passed in April so pernicious is precisely to take away that authority from the one agency that's positioned in this context to provide it. Okay. So how do you, uh, Shahid and Megan, how do you feel about the difference between uh, like Facebook, Google, Twitter, anybody else that's doing any sort of remarketing, uh, as well as kind of the more larger unknown, uh, like Blue Kai, Axiom, you know, kind of like data yeah. aggregators. How do, you, how do you feel about them not kind of falling under this regulation? Uh, because I think from the other side, obviously the ISPs want to have, uh, I mean, at least to say they want it to be equal. You know, why can these people do it and we can't? Um, I mean, I think the challenge is that those companies, the Googles and the Facebooks and, you know, the Twitters are still regulated by the FTC. Um, with this change that happened, these common carriers were sent over to the FCC, so they're not under the FTC's regulatory body anymore. There's no oversight from the FTC for Verizon, for HTT, as common carriers now. Their oversight was supposed to be done by the FCC, and now that this rule has been overturned by the Senate, the FCC is incapable of passing a similar rule, which essentially means that there is no oversight. And so these common carriers have instead signed on to sort of a, you know, uh, regulatory or uh, industry-wide agreement to basically abide by uh, the privacy uh, rules set forth under the FTC. You know, and it's kind of just an agreement between all of these, you know, different companies to do that. Um, but it's basically all bark with no bite. There's no enforcement mechanism. You know, what happens if they don't do it? It's kind of like a promise that, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and, you know, abide by the FTC's rules. But when the FTC was actually in charge of enforcing those rules, the FTC could, you know, start an investigation. They could enter into a consent decree. There could be court actions. What happens now? The FTC doesn't have oversight, and the FCC's taken the rule back. Interesting. And the claims, I should add here, that the FTC can intervene in the wake of Congress denying the FCC uh, uh, jurisdiction are, are fairly disingenuous because the, the Federal Trade Commission does not have jurisdiction. Uh, to do much more than, for instance, enforce 
uh, inaccurate or disingenuous promises made to the public, but ISPs know better than to make promises they can't keep. You know, the fine prints and the terms and services ensure that they're not making promises they can't keep, and as long as they do that, the FTC doesn't have jurisdiction, and now that Congress, you know, as Megan has said, is taking the Federal Communications Commission out of the business of being in the oppor- having the opportunity to regulate Internet service providers, you know, the, one, the one set of actors who we know are going to lose here are users. Okay. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the, the nuances and the techni- technicalities of the, of the law. Um, so if I'm just a in regular Internet user, um, you know, we've talked about ads, you know, being able to insert different ads. Um, what are other things that companies can do with this data and what other data can be collected? So, for instance... Can this be sold to insurance companies, the governments? Um, what, uh, what else besides just targeted ads could uh, be done with this data? I mean, I think when you think about targeted ads, it sounds fairly innocuous. But targeting ads in and of itself is a source of or a type of behavior control. Right? We go through and we do all these things to figure out you know, if an ad is placed in the left side of the screen versus the right side of the screen. Is the user going to be more inclined to click on that ad or not? And we do it on really granular levels to create advertisements that are more likely to be clicked on or more enticing to be clicked on. Um, so and in some ways, it's a way of controlling a populace. Um, you can figure out what sort of things make people tick, and you can make them act in a way that you want them to act. The more information someone has about you in order to determine what you're going to react to, the easier you are to control. Um, and taking it out of like a consumer sense of advertising, we saw some of this happen, you know, presumably, or at least arguably, people are starting to investigate how this happened with the last election. Um, how advertising placements on certain websites um, possibly influenced how people were inclined to think about different political uh aspects of what was happening. Talking about the Russian hacking uh, investigation? Yeah, so I mean, it's, you know, different people can purchase these, uh, this data, and they can use it in a number of different ways. And serving ads isn't always just to purchase goods. Serving ads can be to get across a certain political ideology or to, um, you know, change the view of an individual. Interesting. Yeah, it, to add to that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Bro. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I think, you know, Meg is absolutely right on that, that targeted advertising suggests essentially and, and maybe pretends and perhaps even reflects on opportunities for social control. But just to expand the context into like pre internet U.S. history, I think a lot about these issues through the lens of politicized surveillance of the sort that has plagued intelligence collection efforts in the United States from their very beginning. People forget that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, since its very beginning, even before the agency existed as an independent bureau, has been embroiled in partisan conflicts, which is, and not just in the sense of, like, skewing elections, but in the sense of conducting politicized investigations. Uh, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was, you know, people who were mobilizing to try to stop U.S. interventionist wars abroad. It was Native Americans who were clamoring for Native American and indigenous rights. It was African-Americans and their allies who were clamoring for civil rights, Puerto Ricans who were seeking independence. In a later era, it was environmentalists who were seeking earth rights. 
Uh, after that, it was Muslims. It's been Latinos since. Uh, and I fear particularly the use of, you were asking, Brad, about what else can happen here beyond targeted advertisements and the fact that ISPs can now monitor uh, user browsing history and independently give it to the government separate from the Facebook and the Google of the world, places at risk not only user privacy in a way that we describe user security in a way that we were digging into just a minute ago also, but also ultimately the constitutional right of freedom of expression, the freedom of speech at the heart of the First Amendment. The key principle that enables our democracy is at risk because for people who know how our government has retaliated against people who have independent thought in the past, that awareness uh, coupled with the exposure of, for instance, their identities and their ideologies can be enough to silence them, to lead them to censor themselves. And that self-censorship is one thing that, you know, a lot of people recognize that, that some people might be uncomfortable speaking in public, but I, what I think not everyone understands is that when anyone silences themselves, we are all harmed because we all live in a democracy. That, that's the principle of the First Amendment. It's why we have one. It's not just so each of us can raise our voices. The point is that every one of us should have an opportunity to hear all perspectives because everyone is supposed to have the space to raise their voice. But once you have uh, you know, every opportunity, whether it's ISPs or Google or Facebook or the government, to collect information about what people are saying, what people are thinking, who thinks what in particular, that sort of data capture and monetization and potential exposure to the government deeply threatens speech, and for that reason, it deeply threatens democracy. And I think what, what Shahid's talking about also is a really big problem with how we deal with privacy in the U.S. We see it as an individual right, a choice to be made. And the yeah. fact of the matter is that most people aren't capable of making these kinds of choices for themselves. They don't read the privacy policies, and if they did, they're written in legalese that you know most people yep. can't really understand. So they're not equipped with the tools to even make the, t the choices for themselves. Yet we tout the ability to make granular decisions about our privacy by you know flipping toggles in our account as being a benefit for the consumer. Um, but we need to start shifting and thinking about privacy as a public good. And that any time, as Shahid mentioned, an individual gives up his right to... Uh, to um, to information that it potentially uh, contributes to the erosion of privacy rights for the whole. Excellent. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I uh, if if you haven't seen it already, there's a, there's a really interesting uh, documentary. It's called "We All Live in Public." Um, it's about an old. Uh, internet pioneer who uh, basically made a bunch of money and he created this uh, bunker near the turn of the century which was uh, he he advertised it uh, and said you know come you can you know get everything for free but in order to you know apply for this you had to tell them the most personal details of uh, of a person's you know, background and their history. Uh, it was a very interesting documentary because it shows how, when somebody knows every single thing about you, how that can be used uh, against you, especially in an authoritarian uh, atmosphere. Um, if you haven't seen it, highly recommended documentary. And there's, there's a Hollywood dramatization. I think it was just released. The Circle. Um, adapted from a book by Dave Eggers, and, and I have not seen the film, 
but I have read the book, and I, I appreciated the, the work of fiction. I'm not sure how the, how the movie tracks it, but as a depiction of the sort of dystopia uh, that ubiquitous data collection can represent, I think it's a compelling work of art. Awesome. So going back to kind of the, the data that can be shared, um, you know, one thing that I think everybody should be aware of if you're not familiar with the um, HTTPS or SSL, you know, most of the traffic that you're going to have, and I know Google's really, really pushing for this, is to uh, encrypt um, all traffic, internet traffic that's coming from different web pages. Uh, this really helps with security. And uh, Shahid, you mentioned that, you know, if there was to be any uh, injection of code by the ISPs that you know that could potentially open up holes if it uh, wasn't uh, being transported by SSL. So, assuming that the the data is coming across and it's not encrypted, uh, you know, is this data being anonymized? Yeah, I'm going to throw a T in there. Yeah. So, with that data. Um, is there any restrictions that you're aware of, like who they can sell it to? Um, do they have to pull any of the private information out? Um, can they sell it to the government? You know, can anybody buy it, etc.? As far as I know, it's the Wild West. I mean, what, what the, the, the character of the law was to deny jurisdiction to the FCC, which is to say, you know, it sort of forces a, uh, a, a limitless arena uh, essentially a tacit invitation to ISPs to find every opportunity they can to collect, um, to monetize, and to inject code. What are the upper limits of this? Really, the only way we will have to know is time to witness, you know, sort of the, the limits of the ISP's ingenuity in attracting economic rent from Internet traffic. Uh, but the, the law itself does not specify the various ways in which they might do so. You know, that sort of uh, remains to be discovered in the business model. So, so essentially everything that, for instance, Edward Snowden revealed about, you know, NSA spying and everything, now they could just buy it from the ISP, essentially? Well, I mean, to some extent, I would say in some respects it proves too much that they don't even have to buy it. You know, they can just demand it, quite frankly, from the ISP. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but yes, it's a short edge. Okay. Um, though I do want to parse, I mean, it's worth noting, as long as we're raising the issues that Snowden raised, that one of the, uh, the enabling statutes for the NSA's internet-facing dragnet, that's Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that we can predict is going to be a controversy this year because it's set to expire at the end of this year. So Congress, at some point in 2017, while the ISP broadband privacy rules were shot in the dark. People didn't see it coming. We know that the FISA fight is coming. Uh, we know that the fight over the NSA's internet dragnet is going to come up. And so while, you know, I think internet users and the internet generally got caught with our collective, you know, sort of pants down in the ISP broadband privacy fight, we hope very much that users can take some uh, indication from this recent move by Congress of how willing Congress is to go out of its way to create problems for the Internet, for companies, and for users. Uh, the NSA dragnet is a perfect example of that. It threatens freedom of speech directly in a way that the ISP broadband privacy stuff does as well, right, but in a more indirect fashion. Um, and so, you know, while anyone who's been outraged by the recent erosion of broadband privacy enabled by Congress, I hope, can take some inspiration from this set of events to 
raise their voices about mass surveillance before Congress reaches that set of issues later this year. So one of the things that I've been seeing, too, is that uh, ever since this law has been passed, um, repealed, <laughs> uh, that certain states, so for instance, uh, Minnesota um, has state or has legislation going through their states uh, that will prevent ISPs from collecting personal data without their consent. Uh, there's also been some ISPs that have come out and said, even though we we do have the ability to, to do this, um, we're not going to. Uh, for, for those that are maybe listening in different states, what what can the states do to um, kind of supersede this law, if anything? And what can we do to urge our ISPs to, you know, give us the proper tools and uh, um, be able to fight back and, and say that, you know, we don't want this information uh, collected? I mean, I think yeah, that's... One of the Go ahead, Sharon. No, absolutely, Megan, please. Um, I was just going to say, I think, to, to say what, what can we do to our ISPs to get them to, you know, do better to protect consumer information, I think that's really difficult because of what we were discussing earlier with the fact that most of the time it's monopolized or there's very few players in the game. So there's not a whole lot of incentive to say, well, I'm shopping for an ISP uh, and I want to look for one that really protects my privacy because I may have two choices and they both may not protect my privacy. Um, so you can't leverage that in the same way that you would, you know, with a social network provider, let's say. Um, with regard to passing laws, um, you know, California typically is one of the leaders in passing statewide legislation uh, in the realm of privacy, especially under Kamala Harris. Uh, and oftentimes, because California is so big, you know, so goes California, as goes the nation. Um, and so it's possible that, you know, states could pass laws, and California being one of them, that you know, if an ISP is serving residents of that state, then they have to treat those residents in a certain way. And as a result, uh, it might affect the entire country because they don't want to then silo out certain people in one state, and it's administratively difficult to do that. Um, I think it's kind of early to see what's going to happen with that. Do we know of any legislation in California that's being presented to uh, fight back against this? I don't know of any yet. Okay. I know there are bills being discussed in Sacramento, and I know that there have been several states that have, that have considered them. Um, I think the, the way Megan described them, I don't think it's perfectly accurate, which is one reason why the limits of what states can do is not entirely clear here. Um, you know, there, there's sort of a principle in um, the federalism jurisprudence that essentially recognizes the jurisdictional limits of states. And, you know, this can get expressed sometimes through the Dormant Commerce Clause, it can get expressed through federal preemption doctrine, and it's not entirely clear, quite frankly, what states can do to limit uh, ISP's behavior in other states or over a forum that might reach into every state but crosses interstate commerce, which is beyond the reach of states to regulate. Um, you know, people forget that the Constitution is, among other things, essentially a free, pay, a free trade pact among the 50 states. And so the free trade principles that the Constitution forces on the states and, and limit potentially uh, the authority of states to do what Congress has now denied the FCC the authority to do. Uh, and so if that sounds like a bunch of, you know, sort of legal mumbo-jumbo, that's exactly what it is, uh, and, you know, what are the implications of it? It will take any number of years for the courts to figure it out. Okay. Um, 
One thing I should throw in the mix there, <clears throat> people forget that among the range of options available are uh, public broadband alternatives like municipal broadband. You know, people are incensed by the <clears throat> opportunity for corporate ISPs to essentially, you know, extract them from the Internet and monetize their browsing history. Um, there are examples of municipal utilities where the people basically own their broadband providers. And, you know, that's one potential outlet for citizen rage uh, is to create those kinds of entities with alternatives to corporate ISPs to provide that sort of competition to, uh, <clears throat> to internalize some of that uh, economic rent-seeking behavior and, and plow that back into communities. Um, there, there aren't a ton of those examples uh, around the country, and I'm not, to be perfectly frank, as familiar with how they came about as I would like to be. Um, but those models do exist and, and can provide, um, I, I think, some uh, inspiring examples of worth emulating for people who are concerned. Yeah, and I think that's a great approach. You know, it's it's really hard um, to go go up against uh, people like Comcast, AT and T, like even even Google Fiber. I know was having a lot of trouble. Uh, uh, like Kansas City with Comcast pushing back, and um, Sonic here in San Francisco in the Bay Area has had a lot of pushback as well, but uh, they're starting to grow. They're on that list of providers that have decided that they're not going to sell the data, which I think is is huge for people uh, to see that the people have their back um, and they can go to them. And it's, in my opinion, a great marketing tool uh, as long as they stick to their guns. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. And so are there any tools that you're aware of uh, to view the data that's been collected by the ISP or... This is pretty much a black box at this point. Hmm. Um, there are a couple of tools I can think of to give you some transparency over at least what your ISP and others might be seeing. Um, one tool I can't recommend highly, highly enough, uh, developed by my colleagues at EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is Privacy Badger. It's a downloadable plugin uh, for Chrome and Firefox, uh, available across platforms. It's open code, which is to say you can look at the code and verify for yourself as any number of other people have done that it does what it claims to do. Uh, that's something that, you know, corporate software, whether it looks free or not, rarely gives you the opportunity to do, and it's something as a user that you should certainly have the right to insist upon. Uh, and Privacy Badger will give you essentially <clears throat> transparency over the ad trackers, whether, you know, placed by uh, <clears throat> an ISP or a company serving an ad through a particular social media site, through the social media site itself. Um, so it'll give you transparency over the ad trackers that are running on any particular page that you visit, and it'll give you the option to turn those ad trackers off. So it at least can put you in a position to control your browsing experience uh, a little more. Um, we haven't, as far as I know, released an update since the latest rules went into effect, uh, but it is constantly being updated, and uh, it, it at least is one tool that you can consider using um, uh, to, to help expose some of that, that data capture. Okay. And people can download that uh, from the EFF's website? That's right, yeah. Uh, if you, uh, in any search engine, DuckDuckGo or Google or, you know, any other, uh, just uh, search for Privacy Badger, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, free software and it does not track you, and uh, we're, we're happy to make those kinds of tools available to the public. I think there's also... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, please, I'm done. I think there's also two layers of information here. There's so 
and it's probably going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to get the full picture of what a company has about you. There's the information that they directly collect from you, and then there's inferences that they've made about that information, which also are about you. Um, so even if you're dealing with a tool that will, you know, spit back to you the information that's collected about you, there's a whole other layer of information out there that could be, you know, just as private or more private, perhaps, um, that this company is, you know, that this company believes about you that may be true, may not be true, um, that would be equally of interest to the individual, I think, um, but would be incredibly difficult to figure out what that is from the company. All right. Totally buy that and, and would wholeheartedly support that. And, and maybe we would describe part of what Megan's just describing there as, as algorithmic transparency. You know, the, the idea of having it, for instance, you know, some people will be familiar, I think, with opportunities to <clears throat> you know, subscribe to this corporate service X, Y, or Z to learn what your credit score and so that, that gives you not only an opportunity to see the information that credit bureaus might have about you, but also the sort of outcome of their analytical process. That sort of process happens similarly, for instance, in police departments that use predictive algorithms to either allocate their forces across a given city or to determine the bail, for instance, that a particular individual might be uh, recommended for uh, in a judicial proceeding. But in those same contexts, the algorithms the algorithmic transparency is not there. People don't know, for instance, what is the outcome of the black box that is spitting out some number to assess their supposed future likelihood of committing a criminal offense. Or not only is the outcome of that process unknown, but there's certainly no opportunity, for instance, to contest any of the variables, the, the, the subjective variables fed into the, the algorithms to then generate that outcome. You know, there's sort of a violation of transparency of due process in ways that absolutely affect the lived out experiences of people, uh, particularly in vulnerable communities, in ways that I think will only expand over time. And so Megan's allusion to the what I would describe as a sort of algorithmic transparency principle beyond merely exposing the data transfers uh, and tracking is absolutely crucial and will only grow more crucial over time. And I think it's hard sometimes because people don't understand why they should care about their privacy. This is, I have this even with my own family, which is really frustrating given that I teach privacy law. But, you know, the <laughs> argument is I don't care if they know this about me. They can have that information about me. So maybe yeah, this person that. doesn't care that they, you know, this company knows their race and doesn't care that they know their address and doesn't care about these seemingly innocuous, maybe to some people, innocuous data points in a vacuum. But if I were to tell you that the company, you know, given the example, using the example that was just given, took those, you know, individual data points and based on that decided they were going to send, you know, mass amounts of police to your neighborhood, all of a sudden you might care. Yeah. But you don't under like most people don't understand that there's the connection there. Yeah, I think it just reminds me too of you know in Silicon Valley there's a very, it's a very common like techie kind of thing to do at my company. We did this thing called the colors uh, profiles where you answer like. 30 some questions and then they, you know, make a profile of you. And it was a book that I got back that was, you know, 10 or 15 pages long. And I, I read that book and it was very accurate to my personality. Like even my wife is like, yeah, they nailed this. And that was off 30 data points. I can't imagine the type of profile that could be built based on millions upon millions of data points. So. Well, and that, I think that's all, you know, again, um, accurate to reflect upon, but I, I think it's really important not to lose sight of American history before the internet. But, you know, people forget, particularly Cohen's health, though, the 40-year era when the 
FBI under the reign of J. Edgar Hoover, essentially ran Washington. They were blackmailing members of Congress. They were infiltrating peaceful activist groups. They knew what people wore to bed. Uh, you know, they, they were recording Martin Luther King's sexual liaisons and using them to blackmail him. And Trying to get him to commit suicide. Right, exactly. And this is all documented. They did that using technology no more advanced than a card catalog. And now you give, you know, on, on top of that demonstrated history of using surveillance not to address public safety, but to address threats to the political status quo, you give agencies with that demonstrated track record the kind of technology that now exists, and, and I don't mean just the algorithms, but, you know, the FBI's facial recognition database has 400 million data points in it, you know, driven by everything from the booking records of police departments across the country to uh, uh, departments with motor vehicle records, like driver's license photos. You know, you add to that the sort of, like, you know, through stingrays and um, um, uh, cell site simulators, the opportunity for local police or federal investigators to monitor cell phone networks, you add on top of that the access to the NSA's intelligence collection. We, we have never, there's never been in the history of our species a people that have been more pervasively monitored than we the supposedly free people of the United States of America. Uh, and that should show anyone who is aware of the history here. And I think people who don't necessarily value their privacy, if they're aware of the history or the constitutional principle that connects the right to speech to the right to hear. The people think of the right to speech in the same way that Megan was describing privacy as being artificially construed as an individual right. You know, privacy is similarly not an individual right, nor is speech. If speech is something, yes, that the First Amendment protects individuals to have the right to do, but if individuals have that right in the service of a democracy, they have that right so that each of us have a reciprocal right to hear any. And it's the fact that the government has historically used whatever powers it has had available to neutralize particular voices, coupled with the expanding powers available to government, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the surveillance arena, outside the context of judicial review or legislative oversight, that sets up a predictable risk, especially under this administration, which seems yeah. generally to care so little for limits imposed on executive power by the rule of law. Uh, people who don't concern themselves with privacy might concern themselves with any of those other issues instead and find themselves this very similar conclusion. And, and that's a great, I mean, you know, depending on what you believe, you know, who, what administration, because some people said, oh, I didn't care under Obama, but now they do care about Trump or, you know, no matter what your politics are, you never know who's going to be in charge um, to use this data in, in a way that... Um, uh, is is nefarious. So, well, thank you guys so much uh, for. Uh, on that note, we're going to go uh, to uh, the latest news uh, and kind of a recap uh, where we'll be uh, just doing a rundown of what's happened in the past. Well, since hundred days uh, of the administration, uh, and we'll continue to just uh, talk about the news um, the last part of the uh, podcast each time. So uh, thank you, um, Shahid, and thank you, Megan. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So uh, 
so yeah, so uh, recently we also had a science march uh, over the past weekend uh, that, you know, the main goals of this were to strengthen the role of science in policymaking, uh, improve science outreach and communication, and advance the science education and scientific literacy. Um, so, Adam, wh why do we still need to march for this stuff? <laughs> like, do we need to march for facts, really? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently we do. Um, it's better than an alternative march, I guess. So, um, yeah, no, it, it, it kind of baffles me that that we do need to have these marches. Um, it's great to see that there was this many of them um, all over. And yeah, there were over six hundred marches worldwide uh, that that happened. So, yeah. and, and it was great. You know, I went to the San Francisco one uh, where you were there at the booth of our tech stands up and it was it was great to see so many different uh just backgrounds of people a lot of kids were there um there were a lot of um adults obviously were there um and just people from all different backgrounds and it was great to see uh, the kids getting interested in the different types of tools and games and uh, things that they could do to just become more interested in science excellent yeah it was a lot of fun we had a booth there we we're Kids were making buttons. Um, they had science fair. It was a lot of fun. But if you want to, um, there's still. It wasn't just a march. There's still, uh, you know, if you want to get active um, uh, in in science and in policy, go to marchforscience.com. Uh, you can read about sci satellites, uh, science events that are happening in your neighborhood, uh, so that you can uh, join the movements and stand up for facts and reasoning. Um, so another thing that we're going to be paying close attention to is uh, the uh, the FCC uh, rolled out its plan to kill net neutrality. Um, so essentially, um, you know, talking about right now it's kind of vague and open, uh, but we'll definitely be keeping uh, keeping an eye on that. Um, also, just today uh, was announced that President Trump is launching a new tech group to help transform and modernize the U.S. government. Um, really, this is, uh, we're talking about uh, the companies like Amazon, Apple, Cisco, Facebook. Uh, right now, IBM CEO Virginia uh, uh, Rometty um, will, appears likely to attend, but uh, the Full participants are uh, have not been announced, and this is set to be uh, had in uh, this meeting is set to take place in June. Um, what other? Uh, let's see here. Uh, some wins. Uh, so, 160 tech companies uh, asked a court to reject Trump's second travel ban. So, uh, those who may not know, uh, Donald Trump put forth a second travel ban. Uh, it was pretty much just like the first, and over 150 tech companies uh, told a federal court in Virginia to uh, that it should toss it, and uh, we're, we're really um, proud of the companies that signed on to, uh, to oppose that travel ban. Excellent. Um, so uh, we'll just end it with uh, this. Uh, so I guess um, with this new tech group that's coming up, Adam, do you think that we should be uh, 
what do you think should our tech companies should do? Do you think they should be at the table? Do you think we should? No, they should absolutely be at the table. They, I mean, if uh, if you kind of think of it like you know, I have two kids. It, it's if my kids are going crazy and doing things that they they I feel like they shouldn't. I want to be there to see what's happening. You know, they're two and four. If I'm not there, you know, they're just going to run wild, and that's kind of how I feel like things are kind of going mm-hmm. and so the tech companies um, at least from the tech perspective can have the voice of the people that they're representing I think and if, if they're not there there's nobody to hold them in check and somebody else is going to step up somebody who might have more uh, kind of uh, not as good intentions as some of these companies might may do you know and, and the companies that are stepping up you know there's both sides of the coin some people think that they're quote unquote evil or not evil or whatever it is. But I think being at the table is necessary just to like make sure that you're on top of what's happening. So Those who participate get to make the decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. If nothing else, have a voice to say what actually happened if people aren't trusting what's coming out right. from the White House. Excellent. So we'll just wrap it up here. Uh, we're out of time, but uh, some of the things that are coming up uh, this week. So if you're a tech worker and you're in the Bay Area, there is the Tech Workers Coalition. They have a monthly meetup on uh, Tuesday, May 2nd. Uh, so every month they have a meetup where we discuss uh, how the tech community and industry can get involved. Uh, there's also the Tech Equity Collaborative. Uh, they just announced their uh, brand new membership program, uh, which is fighting for uh, equal housing or or, um, equal opportunity for housing uh, and uh, some of the problems that uh, really plague the Bay Area in terms of um, uh, uh, housing and uh, the different things that are happening in in the Bay Area. So, um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Thank you for tuning in uh, and we'll be here next month. Thank you.